Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Piliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Galef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, with us today uh, via Skype, coming in from the UK, is James Ladyman, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Bristol. Um, James is primarily focused on the philosophy of science and has written a great introductory textbook called Understanding Philosophy of Science. Um, but he's also written... Which I actually happen to use in my classes on philosophy of science. Yes, That's right. It is, it is very good. That's great. Um, we're not going to talk too much about that today, though. No. We're going to be focusing on another one of James's recent books, um, which is actually about metaphys- metaphysics and its relationship to science. It's called Everything Must Go, Metaphysics Naturalized. James, welcome. It's great to have you here. Hello, it's great to be here. Um, that book is, is co-written with Don Ross, of course. Yes, right. and I noticed that you also have a couple of other uh, sort of part-time collaborators on uh, on the book, like uh, which is David Spurrett and uh, uh, John Collier, right? So, That's right. So this mm-hmm. book th- tells us tell us in sort of broad terms how did that, this come about? This book is about, as, as Julia said, the relationship between metaphysics and science. Now, uh, some scientists would say there is no such thing as metaphysics anymore. It's all science. And some metaphysicians would say metaphysics has very little to do with science. Uh, I, I'm guessing you fall somewhere in between. Well, we have a definition of metaphysics in the book, which is the attempt to unify the sciences, to say something about the world in the light of all the sciences that we have. And that is not a project which is part of any particular science. Those scientists engage in that project when they um, think about the wider significance of their theories or how their theories relate to other theories and so on. Um, So I think the scientists are wrong to think that there is no such thing as metaphysics. I mean, that there is a genuine project there. And I think the metaphysicians are wrong to think that metaphysics has got nothing to do with science, if, if that's what they think, which, which, of course, lots of them don't think. Right. Can, some, can, some certainly do. Would you mind giving an example of just one or two questions that a metaphysics um, professor might work on? Well, the kinds of things that metaphysics professors work on are issues about the nature of space and time, uh, the nature of properties, uh, causation, laws of nature, and so on. Obviously, I mean, my choice of topics reflects my interest in philosophy of science, as all those topics are also topics in philosophy of science. But the kind of distinctively naturalistic metaphysical questions I have in mind are issues that are uh, discussed a lot on your blog, I notice, Um, such as uh, what's the relationship between biology and physics? Uh, Can there really be causation in the special sciences if everything's really physical in some sense? And so on. And those questions Mm. have been discussed by people interested in the scientific worldview for a long time. Um, Rutherford famously said, 
in science there's physics and there's stamp collecting <laughs> and what, what he meant by that was that all the other sciences are somehow involved in a kind of pragmatic keeping track of of things that's where the real work is being done <laughs> by the physical and that's a view with which i don't agree but i think uh, that view is a challenge for anyone who who wants to take seriously the evidence we have for some kind of physicalism and that evidence is the unification of science the at the great success of applying knowledge of more fundamental sciences to emergent sciences. So, for example, we just wouldn't have a subject like molecular biology unless that project was successful. Right, so successful independently of fundamental physics, you mean? Yeah, I mean, no, but what I'm saying is that um, the project of, of gaining insight into emergent sciences from more fundamental sciences has been successful. So, right. famously, uh, people will say that... that Pasteur established that biological processes are really, in some sense, chemical uh, processes. Right. Now, uh, so that, that our listeners have an idea of the big picture, um, I, I want to go back straight to the very title of your book, um, which should be pronounced, the, the first two words should be pronounced separate, right? Everything must go. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, Um, it's partly the, the title it is because it, it, it sounded good and was catchy. Yes, But it is. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, there is a point behind it, um, which is that we, we, we set ourselves against a, a particularly dominant way of thinking about the nature of reality, which crudely put is to, is to think of reality as decomposing into some fundamental set of little things. Right. With their own intrinsic properties, and then spatiotemporal relations among them, giving rise to everything else. Like and quark? By, the, I'm sorry, by, by decomposing into little pieces, do you mean like quarks or, or some other yeah, kind of object? If, if you like, okay. yeah. So, so sometimes philosophers will talk about the fundamental building blocks of matter, whatever they okay, tell Okay, got it. Yeah. And, and one part of the book, I mean, chapter... Uh, three of the book, although although it really is informing us right from the start, is uh, an argument, an extended argument to say that physics has fun putatively fundamental, our most fundamental physics has taught us that that picture of the world is untenable. So I, I have in mind the idea that really fundamental particles aren't fundamental as particles. They are to be understood as emergent phenomena that arise because of the underlying behavior of some kind of field which is very difficult to, to, to conceptualize and also that um, ordinary quantum mechanics rather than quantum field theory describes particles as in, in such a way that they don't seem to behave like individual classical objects would right. they behave different statistics and likewise general relativity teaches us that, that space time points are not Uh, individual entities with, between which relations obtain, but rather there is a structure to space-time which has to be understood kind of holistically. Um, at least it can't be broken down to a, a structure of relations between individual points which, which come first. So the, the, the physics behind this, uh, as you, you and, and uh, Don Ross point out in the book, uh, 
has to do with concepts that have been uh, um, surfacing even even the consciousness of the general public over the last few decades, like non-locality and entanglements and things like that, right? So you're talking about the fact that essentially all the current and, and uh, fundamental theories in physics don't really deal with what in, in the book you describe as micro-things and micro-bangings, um, exactly. right? Exactly so. <laughs> but we also think that liberating oneself from the idea that, that we need to find some fundamental set of individuals is important for other sciences too. So, as you may be aware, I'm sure you are aware, there's a debate about individuality and biology. Right. And philosophers are often inclined to take kind of the individual organism as a, a, a prime example of what they mean by an individual, even though we know that the, the, the kinds of organisms that we that we form our intuitions in dealing with and that we, that we see around us, um, let's say, you know, puppy dogs and uh, other human beings and uh, relatively discrete plant life forms are the exception. And for most of life, it's very contentious how exactly individual individuality comes about and what it means and what the status of something as a biological individual is. So, for example, a lot of recent discussion about ourselves as human beings, are we better thought of as colonies than as individuals from the biological point of view? What, what, given the role that the bacteria in our guts play and so on. But when it comes to uh, bacteria themselves or various kinds of plants or um, creatures like Portuguese man-o-war, or, um, then their individuality is, is really problematic. And likewise, um, we know that the idea that psychology is all about you know, the fundamental individual, the self, has been really dismissed by lots of recent advances in psychology. They think of the human mind as much more complicated as not resolving into a fundamental individual and its properties. And um, economics would be another example where the economic agents um, needn't be and probably be- often aren't best identified with individual human beings. Mm. They're a kind of abstraction which, are, which is useful for the purpose of theorising. And that's really the view of our book. It's not that we shouldn't talk about things, but rather that we should uh, regard thinghood as a, a scale-relative matter such that um, in particular theories at particular scales for particular purposes there is a well-defined set of individuals but we shouldn't think of them metaphysically being some right. fundamental set of individuals which which make up the world hmm. and uh, james do you think that physicists like uh, w- at least when you were uh, applying this principle to physics it sounded to my not particularly physics uh uh, informed brain, like something that physicists would have to already be aware of if they're doing physics correctly. So are you, are you explaining physics to the public or, or are you explaining physics to physicists? Well, that's a very good question. I think that physicists are aware of this. And I, I, I think that you know, sometimes they slip into um, thinking of, of particles naively as particles. But I, I would say I mean, it depends what physicists you're talking about, really, but, but, but theoretical physicists in general, I would say, are well aware um, of this. I mean, 
you think of the recent um, discovery of the Higgs boson. Mm-hmm. Um, what's any, any, anyone would say if if asked to be precise is that what's really been verified is the existence of the Higgs field that the Higgs boson is the first excitation state of that field uh-huh. mm. uh, and you know talk of particles being discovered is, is good for public consumption but really the, the, the true story is much more subtle well, this, go- this goes back in some sense to the whole problem that has characterized, to some extent, 20th century physics in terms of especially physicists trying to un- make the rest of us understand what the hell they're talking about. Uh, you know, when, when people think, when physicists talk about, oh, well, uh, light is, is, behaves both as a particle and as a wave, for instance, right? You know, that's, that's a classic from the early part of the 20th century. And, well, the, the, the normal, non-particularly phys- physically oriented person would say, well, what do you mean? Is it a particle? Is it a, or is it a wave? And then you have to start retreating into, well, it's something that behaves as under certain conditions, which sounds to me like what you're saying, right? So you're saying for certain so particular, right. Yeah. right? But I wouldn't call it retreating. I mean, what right. I would say <laughs> is that we, really need to, we, we, we need to be more positive about it and yes. say to people, Look, there's no reason why reality should fundamentally be a a way that we can visualize or grasp an intuition. Mm -hmm. And the experience of physics has has been to, uh, it's become more and more mathematical. And so most physicists, I think, would say, look, we can only go so far in our explanations uh, before we just show you the mathematics and say, this is how it goes. This is how it behaves. So, yes, it behaves a bit like a particle, it behaves a bit like a wave, and both of those ways of thinking are useful for thinking about, about particles for some purposes. Right. But neither of them should be regarded as an insight into the ultimate nature of particles. Now, I think it's really tricky um, because we're always tempted to say, well, yeah, but what is the ultimate nature of particles? And I want to argue that we really have to accept that the ultimate nature is revealed by a mathematical description, and not de- it's not translatable into a description in terms of the uh, in terms of ordinary language. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to go back in a minute to the mathematical description part because that's where I think things get for me very interesting and at the same time very very tricky. But so let's bracket that for a second. Um, just to clarify even further what uh, what you guys are, are proposing here, uh, one of the examples that I that I read in the book that that really brought it home for me, and in fact I wrote about it in the, in the blog posts uh, that that were sort of preparatory to this podcast, was the one the, you know the classic example of. Uh, oh, this table is not really a physical object. It's not really a, a table. It's made. Of, it's really made of you know whatever atoms, quarks, you know protons, etc. And you guys, uh, if I understand you correctly, present these uh, these examples and say, no, no, no. Wait a minute. The correct way to think about it is that at the level of uh, perception of patterns of the world that, say, a human being operates at, there really is a table. It does make sense to call the the, the pattern a table because it is uh, stable enough in space and time at the level of observation and interaction of human beings that you really ought to talk about a table. And in fact, even if you go down to the quantum level, to the atomic level, you can't say that the table is really made of, you know, protons, quarks, or whatever, because those themselves are, in fact, patterns that instantiate, uh, you know, uh, a more fundamental understanding of reality, which is, it's in turn, not made of 
things. Did I yeah. get that right? That's, that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And I would, um, I would say it doesn't just go for tables, but it goes for other things that we're interested in, like molecules or um, intermediate entities between between tables and fundamental physical entities. So, um, what it means to say there's really a table is well, uh, you you will be predictively and explanatory successful in your dealings mm. with, with the world uh, by taking there to be a enduring physical object with a certain mass and certain dimensions. Right. And mm. that, that will enable you to keep track of the phenomena and make, make predictions and so on. And you know, that's at the, at the kind of scale of description that we're interested in. Now, at, at the more fundamental scale of description, I would say not only is it that the the alleged particles are themselves um, made of something else, but I would say rather at the fun, at the more fundamental level, the table doesn't really exist. It, its boundaries <laughs> give out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not useful to track it as a table over the nanosecond scale. Right. Well, um, mm-hmm. In the same way that really, you know, um, as a relatively enduring object is still absolutely useless um, to track phenomena and the cosmological time scale. Uh, thinking about things like tables because they're completely ephemeral from that perspective. So, uh, so go, going the other way around, basically going from a, from a table scale to a cosmic scale, it doesn't. It also doesn't make any sense to talk about tables. So, so. Geology are often called spontaneous when they take about a million years to happen. <laughs> right. So, is the would it be fair to say that the question of of what things quote really exist that that really is just a question of what it's use where it's useful to to draw boundaries depending on on what your the scale is of your perception and what the purpose is of your talking about those objects, um, depending on the context and your own purposes and your desire for communication and prediction, you can draw boundaries in different ways that will be more or less useful. Yeah, I would say that. Although I don't want to sound too relativist and purpose relative. I mean, I think um, by purposes, it means something like, if you mean something like simply keeping track of the phenomena that, we, that we've identified at some scale of description. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But, but, but if that's what you mean by purposes, then yes, that's, that's exactly uh, what I think. Okay. Now, the same idea um, throughout your book at some point gets applied to uh, a concept that you mentioned early on, which is causality itself. So let's talk about causality for a minute, because as you know, uh, the, the concept of causality plays a major role, of course, in all the so-called special sciences, which we should clarify it's anything other than fundamental physics. Um, it also plays a major role, of course, in, in, in uh, uh, metaphysics, and especially in what might be called a non-naturalistic necessarily metaphysics. But even philosophers themselves have often have a problem with the whole idea of causality, going back to David Hume, who thought that it was you know, an unnecessary and unclear concept that, that we just deploy for convenient purposes. But other than that, it's not, it's not doing any actual work. Now, you guys, um, again, it's, if I understood you correctly... Uh, seem to strike an interesting balance there, uh, uh, essentially saying, look, at the, at the fundamental level, at the quantum level below, the concept, the very concept of causality breaks down. It doesn't do any, any work for phys- physicists, so they don't use it. 
Um, and so one could say at that particular level, causality literally doesn't exist or it doesn't do, again, any, any, any useful work. But for the special sciences, it does do useful work. And so in some important sense, it, it, it does exist. Now, how do we square those, those two concepts, if I understood you correctly? Yeah, I think you do understand this correctly. Um, I mean, if I was being a bit more nuanced, I'd probably say we at least think it's an open question whether there's causality in fundamental physics. Okay. So we shouldn't assume that there is. And therefore, um, those who, who argue that the only true causation is in fundamental physics have got things, I think, exactly the wrong way around. But <laughs> saying, saying how... Um, how causation emerges and how it, um, exactly what it is with reference to more, more fundamental understanding that doesn't involve causality, I think really, really difficult. Um, we try to say something about it in the book. We, we, we develop a, a theory about it. I mean, one important aspect of that is the idea that causation is part of a a world where there's already space separate from time and where the uh, the idea of an asymmetry in time can get get a hold. Okay. Those fundamental physical theories are space-time theories where there isn't any such thing as, as absolute time. Now, that business of how... Uh, a world with space plus time as separate, where time seems to exhibit this asymmetry, um, emerges from a more fundamental, timeless, uh, symmetrical world, is I wouldn't pretend to have solved that problem for a moment. Hmm. Uh, do you think that the universe would look any different to like a, an omniscient uh uh, arbitrarily intelligent observer, uh, do you think the world would look any different if there were causality versus if there weren't? Uh, um, well, that's a really interesting question. It depends what you mean by omniscient. See, uh, when we talk about Laplace's demon, as, as often people do, they tend to say, oh, Laplace's demon knows everything about the positions and momenta of all the particles, and uh -huh. therefore about everything. Uh -huh. But that's out of the question I, at this point, I right? I think that's a mistake, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a mistake because, see, if you know too much, then you you may mi actually miss um, some of the some of what you could know that you only know if you're limited. <laughs> so let me explain mm. what I mean by that. Um, the Lots of the theories that we have are theories of um, of a reality which, with respect to fundamental physics, is is coarse-grained and approximate, okay? So our theory of gases um, relies upon us ignoring details about particles and focusing on an emergent level of behaviour. Now, that emergent level of behaviour of pressure, volume and temperature is uh, it's, it's approximate and, strictly speaking, incorrect. It's in exactly the same way that the planetary laws of Kepler uh, which, which, according to which planets move in elliptical orbits, are strictly inconsistent with Newtonian mechanics. So if you ask, you know, would an omniscient being know that planets move in ellipses? The, the answer would seem to be, well, <laughs> depends what you mean. I mean, if you mean a being that knows only the most detailed level, 
then they wouldn't see ellipses because there aren't actually exact ellipses. Mm. If you mean by omniscient a being that knows exactly what approximations to make at all levels to see the emergent uh, structure that exists at those levels, then yes, it would. <laughs> what, what if we imagined a much, much, much simpler universe about which we, by stipulation, know all the facts, that it's, say, a 10 by 10 grid, and each square in the grid is either black or white, and there are you know a few simple rules that dictate how the the color of the different squares changes like if you know it's if a square is surrounded by three other squares that are black then it will turn white or whatever i could posit rules and the yeah. the grid this universe which is the grid just obeys these rules indefinitely um could like is there anything that we could point to that would be different about that universe if there were causality versus if there weren't and if so then is our is our universe different from that in some way Okay, that's a that's a really good question. I think causality has to do with questions about what would happen if something had gone differently. And I think mm-hmm. if you're positing rules that determine how the grid behaves... Describe, I meant describe. You already have causal laws. I meant describe. Yeah. It, it, you know, if you just say, no, here's a universe, I'm just going to tell you everything that actually happens in it. Yes, that's a better thing to say. Then, then that would seem, it would then seem to be an open question, and we just don't know enough to know whether there's causality or law in that universe. Now, I, if, I'd like to point out two things briefly. One is that um, several times in the last few minutes, in answer, especially to um, Julia's question, James has done what I've, I've come to love from philosophers when they do it, and when I was a scientist, I hated it, which was. It depends, depends on, on what, what you, you mean, mean by. That's to me that encapsulates. Yeah, to me that encapsulates the attitude of a philosopher. You know, well, wait a minute. Let's be yeah. precise mm-hmm. about what you mean by this thing. But but I want to go back to something that may have slipped um, uh, the, the the attention of some people um, over over the last few minutes, which is uh, when we, when uh, James, you talked about uh, you know Laplace demon and all that sort of stuff. So. The, the standard, uh, simple, uh, I would almost uh, dare to use the word naive reductionist, uh, determinist, uh, you know, uh, explanation for everything is, well, you know, if you had, imagine Laplace demon who knows the position of all the particles in the, in, in the universe at any particular point in time, therefore, anything is per- perfectly determined and it follows that. Uh, you know all sorts of things like you don't have free will. You, you, it's all in, in, uh, the the, the uh, unfolding of the universe is determined from the beginning. Blah 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 blah. Except, of course, that if we take seriously the picture that um, that you and, and 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 Ross are getting from fundamental physics, there couldn't be a Laplace demon because there are no particles of which or of fundamental objects of which we would know the position and, 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 and uh, behavior of the universe at every particular time, right? Right. I mean, so, I, think the, I think the view I've defended with Don is that the evidence suggests that, that there's no particular reason to think that there's a fundamental level of fundamental objects. Now, we don't claim to know that for sure. Mm-hmm. We could be wrong about that. It, you know, a lot of people have assumed that there must be, and I think science kind of proceeded pretty well, assuming that there must be. Right. But we've now reached the point where we've seen so much evidence that 
each time we think we've got to the putatively fundamental level, there's a lot more going on, as with atoms, for example, which aren't really atoms. You know, they're not indivisible. They're not right. the base constituents of matter. Mm -hmm. So that makes, makes me think, look, there's really just no reason to assume there's a fundamental level to reality. And absent any reason to assume, it ought to be an open question. And if it's an open question, you shouldn't build into your worldview an answer to that question. Right. So you need to have a worldview that's compatible with that, hmm. with there not being a fundamental level. And that's what, what we've tried to articulate. But I should stress that I'm and Don, um, we, you know, we're very much claiming... To, well, we're very much trying to offer a defeasible, scientifically informed metaphysics that based on our best knowledge so far. Mm -hmm. And no, that is not likely to be the final story and lots of what we think could be wrong. Right. Hmm. Now, the, I want to push you over just one more minute on, on the, the issue of... Um, reductionism and determinism because in the book at some point you actually um, claim and, and I've, I've reacted with somewhat of a surprise to that claim um, that that straightforward physical reductionism is not actually a particularly popular or particularly um, you know um, yeah I guess a particularly popular position among philosophers of science or metaphysicians I may have gotten that wrong so what do you think is this is the status of physical reductionism um, in, in philosophy? Oh, well, that's a good question. I think, I think lots of philosophers would like to have non-reductive physicalism. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I think lots of philosophers, on the one hand, they want to say, yeah, look, there's clearly some sense in which we've learned that physics kind of makes everything up or, or something like that, right? Right. Um, <clears throat> that everything's physical, um, that the world's emergent from the physical, there's some asymmetric relation between the rest of science and physics. Right. On the other hand, I think most people find a straight reduction implausible. Now, the difficulty is, you know, it's one thing to identify a position you'd like to have. <laughs> sure. uh, and it's another thing to actually make that defensible. And I think many philosophers think that actually non-reductive physicalism isn't defensible. And so they're either reductionists And they think, look, it's just tough. We don't really want it to be like this, but we, 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 the arguments force us this way. Mm -hmm. Or they're anti-reductionists of some kind of anti-physicalist stripe, right? right. Who th there's some sort of strong form of emergence that there can be downwards causation. Maybe there's an autonomous realm of right. the mental, whatever. Um, and we are really trying to uh, defend, make plausible uh, the sort of traditional middle ground uh, and you know one may wonder can we really have that uh, it seems like having your cake and eat it <laughs> sorry that's an english um, yes locution um doesn't really make a lot of american sense too. Yeah, yeah, american? yeah yeah it does make sense here mm -hmm. too yeah <laughs> okay um but but so yeah that's what that's what we, we would like to have um so yeah the status of reductionism contemporary philosophy i think uh There's a, it's a kind of divide between those who, who accept it and those um, who run in the opposite direction and give up physicalism in order to avoid it. Hmm. Yeah. And just to be clear, um, because again, I, I guess I would count myself and on, and on those philosophers that are interested in, in, in what you're referring to as a third way um, in, between the, in between those two extremes. I certainly reject any kind of strong form of emergentism. 
But at the same time, I'm very uncomfortable also with straightforward reductionism. And it seemed to me, while reading your Maxwell, book... What, do you, what yes. do you mean by the strong form of emergence versus um, weaker forms? Oh, a strong form of... I'm sorry, that's true. A, a, a strong form of emergence would be uh, the idea that, that although everything is made in fact of, you know, whatever, particles, building blocks, etc., at some point, the interactions among some of these particles, when, they, when, the, when the objects become complex enough you have essentially new laws of nature or new patterns of behavior, new levels of causality that come into existence. That, um, and they cannot be, be reduced. Right, in terms exactly. of the lower level laws. Correct. Now, that is a strong form of, of um, emergence, which you know, I think is logically possible. I just don't see any particular reason to uh, endorse it other than you, you don't like physical reductionism. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I, I also find physical reductionism unpalatable for a variety of reasons, one of which is that it, it, um, um, it does seem to go away, do, to, to simplify and get away, go away, do away with too many things that are actually interesting at the level of the special sciences. Mm. I should note for our listeners that when philosophers talk about things, about not liking things or finding things unpalatable, they don't just mean it makes me sad. Right. They mean like... <laughs> It makes it hard to account for these other things that I believe to be true about Correct. the world. Yes. So <laughs> go right. on. It wasn't just a matter of taste. Yeah. I, right. Yeah. So, so what I found in, in, in uh, James and Don's um, ideas uh, throughout the book, interesting, was precisely what James was saying a minute ago, which is this may be one way to start thinking about a, a, an interesting third way. And if I understood correctly, this third way would, would be built on the essential idea that, look, it may turn out that things like causality and fundamental objects, which are, after all, the two f- main reasons why physical reduction is built, can build their case, don't actually exist, or at least they need to be recon- you know, reconsidered, reconsidered greatly. Mm-hmm. And so if the two major conceptual building blocks on which you're, you're, you're basing your reductionism are going to be at least diffused, if not entirely eliminated, then it seems like physical reduction is, has a problem. Mm-hmm. Is that is that about right, James? Yeah, that's right. And I, I'll say something else as well. It's, always, yeah. it, it's often been thought that the, the entities of the special sciences are um, problematic. Yeah. So if Entities you, like... Like, like well, it's say, individual like organisms. Like okay. Mental states or... Oh, yes. Uh, um, like... Um, mental processes of, okay. of any kind, um, but also you know, living processes. Um, now, of course, it sounds strange to say that the entities of special sciences sound problematic. If you start talking about cells, you think, well, who thinks they're problematic? You know, loads of people in science labs work on cells all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, that's exactly right, and that's precisely why it's not plausible to have a view that says there aren't any such things, because all there are is particles. Um, but what has often been thought is that somehow these higher level entities are are problematic because they're not as clear cut and um, don't have the same kind of definite all or nothing reality that the fundamental physical things do. And what we find from fundamental physics is that, well, we have descriptions of things in terms of particles and they're useful to some degree of approximation. Then we go to a more fundamental theory and those particles turn out to be just emergent approximate structures to some, some deeper level of reality and so if that kind of is always the case then we don't have any particular problem with things that you might have worried about in the special sciences so if someone comes along and says well i don't like economics because i just don't know what these utility functions are and i don't know where to find them i don't you know where, where are they in space and time you might be inclined to say well look that's not a good objection because 
even particles sometimes can't <laughs> say where they are in space and time. And what, we, what really matters is, do you have a theory which talks about these things that enables you to predict and, and explain and describe the behaviour of reality? Hmm. And if you do, there shouldn't be a further question about the ontological, you know, ontological status of the mm. things the theory talks about. So uh, does this discussion bear on the realism versus anti-realism debate? Um, like, I, I don't know whether what you're saying would count as anti-realism. Maybe it would just count as it's irrelevant whether things really exist or not. Yeah, I think, I think our view counts as, as realism in one sense, because we think that there are uh, organisms, cells, mating strategies, utility functions, markets, a- economic agents molecules, atoms, whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just it how you carve them up that... Counts as anti-realist yeah. in another sense because we don't regard any of these things as fundamental and we regard all of them's existence as sort of proximate and scale relative. Mm-hmm. And this this view is uh, referred to in, in your book as ontic structural realism. Um, well, yes, but all, I mean, really, the, you asked at the beginning how the book came about and it right. really came about because I developed ontic structural realism in the context of philosophy of physics. Mm-hmm. Don had developed a, a, a view in, about a, a form of realism about the special sciences he called rainforest realism. Right. And the book came about because we thought we would put the two together. Yeah. Um, he, I never really thought very much about the ontology of the behavior and social sciences. And, and, and Don said, well, I didn't have a philosophy of physics. And so um, we set about trying to uh, come up with a a unified account of that would work for both fundamental physics and the uh, the special science. You want to tell so, us in uh, in a couple of minutes before we go back to what I bracketed a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, do you want to tell us in a few minutes what what, uh, what does Don mean by uh, rainforest realism? <laughs> I know I know what he where he comes from. Uh, having what, read the book, what, but what he meant by that was a kind of pr- uh, plural pr- sort of. What John D. Prazeman has called a promiscuous realism, a pluralistic realism, it's, it's really a reference to the philosopher Quine, who yes. in a famous paper said that he had a liking for desert landscapes. And what he was referring to was the idea that ontology should be very austere. Right, as bare as possible, right. As bare as possible. And Don's uh, image of a rainforest is meant to in striking contrast to the desert. Uh, ontology here being uh, the description what of what, what things we say exist. What, yeah, what there is. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I'd also like to get in one more question before yeah. we move to your bracket, Massimo. Um, James, I'd be curious to hear examples of metaphysics as it is often practiced that you don't think are meaningful questions or that you think are misguided or, or like um, misguidedly detached from science. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> we, we, you, you feel free to not name names if you well, yeah, or, or or to name names if you yeah. like. <laughs> um, well, I, I think uh, I personally, you know, if I hear people arguing about whether a statue is identical to the marble that makes it up, I mm-hmm. find myself thinking I must not be interested in philosophy. Yeah, <laughs> my heuristic uh, is when I hear statues mentioned, my brain shuts off just because they're well, usually mentioned in examples that I think are. Right. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's, it's that kind of question, yes. I also am not interested in debates about how, whether or not simples compose composite objects because I don't mm-hmm. know what they mean by simples. I don't recognize the idea of simples from m- my understanding of physics. Mm-hmm. And I don't 
like the way that they often think about composition because I think composition in science is dynamic. Um, in science, if you want to know, for example, if you want to know how the parts of a cell compose the cell, uh, you need to look at how they interact. Uh, it's their interactions that make them stay together in such a way as to be, as to be a cell. It's not their physical proximity, mm. their mere physical, you know, spatial relations or mm-hmm. anything. That's what um, and that's especially true with things, you know, with, with chemical kinds, things like water and so on. I mean, it's how things interact that makes them compose other things. It's how uh, how atoms interact with each other that, that gives rise to the, them form, forming uh, molecules and, com, um, you know, macroscopic structures. Mm-hmm. So, then, yeah. And then it, and there's also the kind of style of questioning where you... You address questions about composition or about space and time or about the nature of matter in a way that isn't closely informed by our best science. I think that's problematic as well. And I think we should make clear that it's just not it's not just the fact that you and and don't don't like those kinds of you know that kind of metaphysics. You actually refer to it in in, in the book as neo-scholasticism, which in in modern philosophy is pretty much as close as you can get to an insult as as, as possible, right? <laughs> what does yeah, it mean, Rasmus? Well, you know, like the scholastics used to argue about how many uh, angels will will, will ah, be on the pin, dance on the pin, uh, and that sort of stuff, right? <laughs> So essentially, there is a recent paper in mind about how many angels can dance on the end of a pin. There you go. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be mean. To, I mean, I think I'm very ignorant about scholasticism, and I, I think probably the medievals are, have been sort of unjustly neglected, and they have a lot of insights about logic and um, mm-hmm. and, and so on. So, um, but I think what people had in mind when they talked about scholasticism was a kind of inward-looking. Uh, academic activity right and that's really what i object to so i i i worry when philosophy becomes it's supposed to be about the world but it um is all about other philosophy mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a kind of closed conversation among philosophers then then i think that's problematic right. i think that in the history of philosophy it's, it's also um very unusual, you know. There never used to be such a thing as professional philosophy, and the great philosophers were all interested in uh, in the rest of, of of knowledge, and as, as certainly those who did metaphysics or, or thought about the fundamental nature of reality. So, um, on the whole, um, you know, for example, you know, Kant, and Descartes, and Leibniz, and so on. So, um, Aristotle, Plato, you know. So, so yeah, it's not so much the questions that they're addressing but really whether they whether the subject as a whole is sufficiently paying attention to to the rest of human knowledge although to, to be fair and and then i want to go to my previously bracketed part before before julia is going to tell us that we're out of time a time um to be fair uh, i think what you're describing what you've been describing in the last few minutes uh as a state of professional philosophy is Perhaps an inevitable uh, result of the same thing that has happened in science throughout the 20th century, which is the professionalization of, of the discipline the, 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 and therefore the specialization of the discipline. I, I can guarantee you that I know a lot of scientists who are very inward looking and spend you know, 30 years of their career and unlike philosophers, uh, spend also hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars looking at things that are quite parochial and not really that different from the sort of from the scholastic um, fixation on, on angels and, and pens. But anyway, but that, that's a whole different conversation which we might have to have at some time. So before we go and before, before Julia tells us that we need to go, back to the um, 
thing that I bragged before, which was the, this, this idea of, of mathematical relations. Now, at several points in the book, um, you and, and Don uh, gone to say, you know, okay, one way to think about what we're proposing is that it may turn out that at the bottom of reality, there are no things, there are only structures, there are relations, and so on and so forth. You talk about mathematical relations, and mathema- in some sense, mathematical objects, which, of course, in many people's minds, including my own and some of my graduate students when we were reading the book, brings up the um, idea of mathematical Platonism. Uh, you do mention which the is. word, yeah, which which is, uh, well, which is we should be, which first of all should be um, separated from Platonism as as in Plato, uh, you know, as just just like um, Platonic love actually nothing to do with Plato. Uh, I think mathematical Platonism is distinct enough from the original theory of the forms uh, and and of a, a, a more perfect reality that Somehow Plato had. Somehow your explanation is only making it more confusing. Yes, <laughs> what is I know. Mathematical I'm getting it. Well, like, actually, just, I want James to tell us what. Okay. means by, by mathematical pedonism, but, but essentially um, I noticed that you guys just dip your, your, your toe in there. They me- you mentioned the word a couple of times and then sort of say, well, okay, maybe that's for another time. What, what's going on there? What is mathematical Good. Platonism, and how is that? What do you, you guys relate to it? To it. So, mathematical Platonism is a view that mathematics is um, describing exist existent objects or structures, uh, and usually that means abstract structures that are outside of space and time. Right. Um, things that can't causally interact with us, but nonetheless exist, and that famously raises deep questions about if there are such things, how could we know we were referring to them and talking about them and know know about them and so on. Uh, Really, I think the reason why we say what we say is because we know that we take mathematics and mathematical description very seriously. And also because, like many scientists, we have started to wonder about the abstract concrete distinction and about whether... uh, reality in some sense is mathematical or whether the the characteristics of the mathematical as being abstract and outside of space and time and non-causal might actually apply to uh, the fundamental physical entities that that we can only talk about using very abstract mathematics. So um, the other doctrine that is uh, relevant here is Pythagoreanism, according to which the physical world is is essentially mathematical. And what we're really signaling is that we we recognize that we uh, pretty much kind of assume some kind of realism about mathematics, and we're agnostic about whether the right kind of realism is Platonism or Pythagoreanism, I think. Okay. Okay, sorry, James. I've been I've been giving Massimo a stern face for the last <laughs> six minutes or so. You know, when I I, I teach these workshops sometimes about rationality, and we had this policy because all the instructors would go over. We had this policy that one of our volunteers would come in and shoot the instructor with a Nerf gun whenever he wow. or she went over time. So maybe, maybe I'll bring my Nerf gun next time. Okay. Um, so uh, as noted, we are now out of time. Uh, so we are going to wrap up and move on to the rationally speaking picks. Welcome back. Every episode we pick a suggestion for our listeners that has tickled our rational fancy. This time we ask our guest, James Lederman, for his suggestion. James. 
The book I want to suggest is Roger Penrose's book, The Road to Reality, which is supposed to be a complete guide to the laws of the universe for the layperson. Uh, it has to be said that... Nothing uh, less than that, huh? <laughs> it has to be said that um, Roger Penrose's conception of what the layperson can uh, achieve is, is uh, pretty optimistic. <laughs> but nonetheless, for, for readers with some degree of mathematical and scientific training, I think the book is incredibly rewarding. I've been uh, reading it in a reading group continuously for several years, um, going forward, going back, starting again, trying to understand more, uh, going away and looking at other books to try and understand enough to carry on and so on. So it's an extremely challenging book, worthy of a lifetime study, but one that I think is full of amazing insights and uh, rich information about our mathematical physics. Wow, and yeah, I, I thought that I, spending one semester on your book was a pretty good project. Now, now you're going to get me onto this kind of thing. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe for our listeners who don't feel uh, exceptionally ambitious, they can wait until the the cliff notes to the cliff notes <laughs> to this book come out. That's right. <laughs> but it, yeah, it sounds fascinating. There's a lot of cosmology in the book and a lot of narrative. So even if you don't get all the mathematics, you can still benefit by reading Penrose's discussion of the of the really extraordinary uh, theories that people have come to believe to be true about the extent and nature of our universe. Great. That sounds fascinating. Um, thank you so much, James. It's been a, a pleasure having you as a guest on Rationally Speaking. I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, I hope your listeners get something out of it. I'm sure they will. Yep. Um, thanks very much. Uh, this can then concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>